dox you on War Thunder. <laughs> Dude, I, two, two more leaks, man. Dude, I, I swear to God, for in fairness, the F-16 one wasn't really a leak so much as like a, you can't post this online, it's not allowed. Yes. Like it's it, it is it is unclassified information that you just can't post online. Um but I'm still not sure I know there was an F fifteen one, which I still haven't looked at. Um yeah, and I, then there's honest. I was gonna report on it, but I don't think it happens that much and no one cares now. <laughs> well no, it's like it's like three ma honestly, the SU fifty seven one might be worth reporting on because no major publications have picked it up yet and it is amazing it it turns out that the typhoon has a better rcs uh layout than the uh oh, than the no. su-57 that's not even a joke per per these internal documents it, it legitimately the typhoon is more stealthy than the su-57 yeah maybe i will pick that one up <laughs> But you yeah. guys, you no, because you could you seven could... looks like a stealth fighter, right? So therefore, it is. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, you could you could legitimately just title it as you know leaked Russian documents show you know Su fifty seven less stealthy than Typhoon. Because you can you can use publicly available Typhoon RCS data because it's I mean it's not like they designed it to be a stealth fighter or anything. So there's at least an idea of how stealthy it is. I don't know. <laughs> and on that bombshell ladies and gentlemen welcome back to the Ocean Bunker podcast um, this is season 5 it is 2023 um, we are back with pretty much the whole team um, myself uh, Ocean Technical George Allison from the UK Defence Journal and obviously Austin and um, we are back for season 5 and uh, hopefully we've got some uh, interesting episodes coming up um I apologise for however much of uh, the, the introduction that Technical decides to leave in. He doesn't realise I've been recording for the last three minutes, so while I am genuinely all sorts of uh, <laughs> stuff, including home security cameras and whatever else. Um... <laughs> I am I am genuinely too lazy to cut a lot of stuff, so... <laughs> so most of, most of the first two or three minutes, you guys are probably going to be listening and thinking, what on earth is going on there? Um... But yeah, uh, welcome back, guys. Um, I trust you all had uh, some sort of rest over over Christmas break, um, and I, I think it's fair to say we are going to start tonight where we left off and uh, jump straight into Ukraine and the Great Tank debate. <laughs> oh man, I'm not touching that one with a ten foot pole. <laughs> <laughs> someone someone else mess with the european politics because honestly it's just it's become such a charged situation and anytime you hear you know german nationalists getting angry you kind of take a step back and, and get really scared gosh the, the news this morning was that germany isn't blocking the export of leopard, leopard tanks but digging deeper into that i think it's because no one's asking it put me in mind of the, you know, the UK weapon flights to Ukraine just before the start of the war, where they were over, they weren't overflying Germany. Now, the 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 gist of everything at the time was Germany wasn't asked, and but a lot of people didn't realise Germany wasn't asked because it was understood that they'd say no. And I think it's probably the same with the tanks just now, although they do say they aren't blocking it. But yeah, I I mean, so a lot of the arguments that I've seen for uh, again, a lot is based on hearsay at the moment. Um, which is, you know, just not a great source of information because it's hearsay. Um, but I, sometimes it's best to take kind of the logical path and say Poland has already given Ukraine what? A absolutely massive amount of, you know, supplies so far, including, you know, fairly, fairly modern systems like the AHS Crab, which is, you know, their frontline, um, you know, artillery system. Um, and I don't see why the polls would internally block something like that. Um, I mean, they might, I, I just don't know why they would if they've already, you know, given those donated units. Um, 
I, yeah, I, I, I'm just, I, and, and of course people, people, people will say just because the Polish government hasn't put in a request yet, they're internally blocking the transfers. Um, but I, I, I just, I, I don't think that's the entire truth. And I think a lot of that is sort of happening behind closed doors and, yeah. and anyone who acts like they know everything that's happening is probably not being completely honest. Or, or 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 maybe exaggerating what they know or or what they can understand. Yeah, I would say these are the these are the kind of diplomatic conversations that play well into folks trying to you know build a narrative. And I think we've kind of been here before with the uh, the debacle over the MiG twenty nines in um, April and May of last year, where you had you know certain certain members of certain governments saying things that they probably shouldn't have been saying publicly, and that kind of leading to a breakdown of negotiations uh, in the background. Right. And where we've gotten to on this on this tank debate now is it's gotten to the point where there's been so much sort of public discourse from public officials from various countries, whether it's the Baltic states, Poland, Germany, France, the UK, that it's it's starting to become sort of politically beneficial to certain uh, actors to continue to bring it up and attempt to apply uh, political pressure. Um, the problem is that because a lot of these actual negotiations are happening in, in the back door, uh, there isn't a lot of data to sort of pull up with it. And it ends up kind of driving down into a he said, he said, she said moment or, you know, what you would describe as your average argument at your local playground where someone's like, yeah, I did that. And the other person's like, nah, and there's not much beyond that going on. Yeah. And, and again, I think most of the people commenting on the situation right now just don't know <laughs> like it's just they they don't have a solid idea of what's actually happening um and i think there is a lot probably going on in the background like it it does seem like the germans would like any donation of leopard tanks to be larger than you know just a small one um and, and that they're also they they appear to be um, pushing for the U.S. to donate Abrams as well, which is a whole other can of worms um, <laughs> that that isn't as simple as just, like, give tank to Ukraine, mm. um, at least more so than something yeah. like uh, like Leopard. Um, well, I but I, I, I do think it is, a, it is a highly complex situation that some people are trying to distill down to get basically your standard european squabbling um that's been happening for the past i i don't know 2000 years or more like it, it's it's not new um but yeah yeah I, I don't know if anyone has read the joint statement on the talon pledge it was um oh gosh it was it was released a couple of days ago and updated today but it's really heavy on this idea that Poland, the UK, and other European nations are looking to establish a sort of wider coalition of leopard tank donors. So um, Poland is ready to donate a company of leopard two tanks with 1,000 pieces of ammunition pending a wider coalition of leopard two tank donors being established. Yeah, that seemed to be one of the elements that Poland wanted a wider coalition. Yeah. And it does seem like a few states have kind of jumped onto that. Um but I think the problem with that coalition is that short of, like, Germany joining it, it wouldn't be exactly a wide coalition for no. at least the supply of leopards. And I think one of the internal pro problems right now is that Germany really doesn't have that many leopards. They, they have a lot of leopards on paper. Yeah. In practice, they don't have a lot of working leopards and so any german donation of leopards would really sort of cut into the available stocks of of what they have available for units um and i i don't think they're prepared to do what the uk has done which is just you know sort of the damn the torpedoes we're giving them you know ukraine ukraine's getting the systems even if it sort of drains our own internal capabilities yeah um and, and it, i i think yeah for, for the uk it comes at an interesting time because obviously the most recent defense review the decision was that the actual challenger battle tank fleet would be reduced in size and the reduced number would then be the only frames that would be upgraded to challenger 3 variant 
So the fact that we've obviously, I, I'm assuming it's going to be some of the Challenger twos that we're not planning to keep and upgrade are the ones that we're now sending to Ukraine. And I, I think we've committed to fourteen uh, of the type to be sent to Ukraine. Um, it, it comes as a, it's obviously an interesting move, move, and and perhaps there's a sort of thought process in the MOD that if we're getting rid of some of the tanks anyway as part of the defence review then why not give them to someone else who can make use of them um, whether that means that we'll end up seeing more Challenger 2s being handed over to Ukraine or whether as um, Prime Minister Sunak has, has turned around and said recently we, we end up reviewing the reduction in the size of the British fleet and end up perhaps keeping a few more than we originally intended to and then whatever we yeah. still decide not to keep potentially then gets handed over as a sort of second batch to Ukraine. Um, I, I guess. I mean, I'm just. Seen. Yeah, I I was just looking at the AS90 deployment, which was a significant portion of the UK's actual AS90 fleet. Hmm. Um, I think what what percentage of like the the active AS90 squadrons was it? Like like forty percent. Yeah, I think I had about 35-40%. Yeah, which is just very surprising. I mean, I, I think the UK has how many AS-90s in service? Like, a uh, hundred maybe right now? Mm. Um, and we've and, and sending 30, haven't we? Yeah, 30, and that's going to be the ones that are at, you know, the highest states of readiness, in, in practicality, because, yeah. you know, that's kind of how it works. Um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting to see those sort of be sent in, in that way. Um, though, I mean, you know, you look at how Poland has, what, what Poland's done with their, um, uh, uh, supply of AHS crabs, which are just an incredibly interesting system. That, that's, that's a Korean howitzer, you know, chassis with a AS-90 turret and a French yeah. gun, um, <laughs> Uh, but but they they donated 18 out of the 80 they had so a similar ratio to what the UK is doing now though granted the crabs that the the poles procured were were a bit newer um i i don't think they actually started receiving them in, until like 2008 i think and, um and interestingly i've seen today that estonia has turned around and pledged to hand over all of its 155 millimeter howitzers, which I believe are the South Korean-made K9 Thunders, they've they've told Ukraine oh, okay. that you can have all of them. Now, from what I understand, um, Estonia ordered 36 in total, 12 of which they've ordered this month, and out of the sort of 24 they previously ordered, they've had 18 delivered so far. So I don't know if the plan is that they're going to hand over the 18 they've got and then just have the remaining 18 when those orders are delivered or whether they're genuinely planning to hand over potentially more but again well, that, that's an entire national fleet of 155 oh yeah. mil howitzers which is quite quite a significant um, commitment as on top yeah. of that Denmark are donating 19 of their Caesar 155 millimeter artillery leaving Denmark without any sort of effective artillery system hmm. which is quite the commitment <laughs> There has yeah, been some speculation on the Danes themselves, though, that this is a, a move to sort of get rid of their, their Caesar systems in exchange for a potential new deal with the Swedes on replacing those with their own archer systems. Yeah, it, it seems like there is a lot of shuffling going around right now with, you know, countries not just getting rid of their older, older systems anymore, but now getting rid of their current systems in order to push forward upgrades under current expanded defense spending, which a lot of European countries did authorize after the Russian invasion. Um, but I, I do think that currently right now, Germany is in this position where they have been put under pressure because other European nations are making proportionally very large sort of commitments of military supplies and, at least publicly, Germany has been perceived as being slow to sort of put stuff forward to Ukraine. Mm. Um, 
and and also combine basically combine it with a lot of the PR facing stuff that Germany's run into with you know gas supplies and you know internal government you know pro Russian sentiment within their government um, and and sort of this this historical stuff that's that's happened especially with you know all the Merkel statements that were made over the past ten years that were you know generously viewed as tepid on russia mm. um and if you sort of had a bit more of a look could be construed as you know pro-russia in nature um i i think that's definitely hurt them and they a lot of the current perception is that the germans want to you know maintain not neutrality per se but you know it's the 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 jerk the german reasonability of of you know always being sort of you know stoic on a on an issue um and it, it it's put them in a situation where it, it may not necessarily look good for them um which i i i do think causes trouble um where whereas you know you would be able to to at least put forward some additional resources and and sort of silence some of the criticism um, whereas they've they've been at least politically unable to do that. Um, and so you'll see commentators naturally act defensive over those issues. And I know I spent like a bunch of time basically saying nothing there because I'm I'm really, really not trying to make anyone angry. But like I, I, I do think Germany is is in an untenable position politically right now where they're going to have to at least push forward some donations um, that are more substantive or they're going to face more political pushback within Europe. And I would say both the Germans and the, the Poles politically find themselves in awkward situations around this. On on the Polish side of things, right, you have this uh, idea of building around, you know, a coalition of the willing to donate more Leopard tanks. But, you know, of the countries that have been more warm to that issue, either they don't you know, currently use leopard tanks like the Netherlands, who sold, I believe, all of theirs, uh, or they have them in such sort of small supply that even if they really did sign on, you wouldn't see a large sort of donation. I mean, if the Danes tomorrow said, yeah, we're all in with Poland, we're going to send as many leopards as possible. Well, um, it is it is interesting because it, the Netherlands did sell off all of their leopards, but then they also went and they're now funding without you know they're they're funding the upgrades to t-72s hmm. um to to send to ukraine so it, it's it's sure they're not physically providing the supplies but they're providing a lot of the necessary funding for a somewhat novel program that in effect sort of replaces what they would have done already for sure but i i think what poland wants is they want somebody in that coalition that's not just themselves who has a significant amount of leopards and the only real countries that could do that would be either the germans themselves um the turks or the greeks and we really on the latter two we really haven't heard much at all from them yeah well i, I don't think i don't think either is going to give up le leopards until the other one does in that situation so for sure i i i, I do think that is but i i do think there also is the element of sort of supply and long-term support that I mm. don't think the Poles want to be singularly saddled with maintaining a Ukrainian leopard fleet. Um, whereas if they were able to rope in, say, Germany, who has the some of the resources necessary to maintain that long-term support, then I think they would be far more comfortable with those donations. Yeah, I definitely agree on that. And then I would also say in regards to the, the German stance on this, um, I, I think you brought up a really salient point earlier uh, regarding just how much of the German tank fleet is capable of being shipped quickly uh, and being sustained in, in the short term. And I think not much of it. No, not much. And I think the Germans want to, you know, hide that fact for as long as possible. I mean, obviously, it's very bad PR to talk all about you know, as as we talked about previously with the the Merkel administration and everything like this, there's been to to many the common observer. There's always been this idea that you know the German economy and the German military are both powerhouses, and 
at, for as much fire as the German government is under fire now, you know, even if they signed off tomorrow and were like, yeah, we're sending the leopards. And then everyone looks at the numbers and they're like, eh, the best we can do is 20. That's a that's a bit of a PR defeat for Germany. Hmm. And I, th I think what you said, about, particularly about Turkey as well, um, obviously, Turkey is causing its own problems in NATO at the minute by effectively refusing to allow the likes of uh, Sweden and Denmark to, you know, join. Um, we've obviously seen this, another statement from um, Turkey's President Erdogan today um, basically saying he's not going to let Sweden join NATO because of, uh, I think it was a, a Danish politician set fire to a Quran in Stockholm or something. Um, oh god not that guy again and and, 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 and you just think like oh, i mean seriously I, I, I don't get me wrong i understand that obviously you know turkey is a majority muslim country and so something like that is quite offensive to them but in the grand scheme of things it does strike me as just he's coming up with any excuse he can now just to try and be as much of a thorn in nato's side as he can um, we've obviously all of last year. No, was... no, no, no. That's that's not what the current thing. I mean, he's maneuvering <laughs> around. He's he's maneuvering around upcoming elections, which yes. is the. I mean, he's trying to rally a fairly diverse group of nationalists, which I know kind of seems you, you know, counterintuitive as a term, but um, I, I do think that. There may be a change in tone after the elections in Turkey, because Erdogan's out for Erdogan. That that is that that's you know I I I I don't think there's really a difference from that one. Erdogan being out for Erdogan is absolutely correct there, uh, and I would say the second point on top of the upcoming elections in Turkey would be the current sort of hoopla being thrown around about the uh, the F sixteen deal to Turkey, um, and. As much as Erdogan will be focusing a lot on things that are directly relevant to internal Turkish politics, uh, what's been very clear since it was first announced that Sweden and Finland were seeking uh, membership in NATO is that, you know, Turkey wants its piece of the pie here. Um, and in order for them to take that back, for Erdogan to take it back home and declare it as a win, he wants to, you know, he wants to get his piece of the pie. He wants to see these concessions being made on uh, groups that he deems to be, you know, terror groups operating within Turkey, as well as to see um, in, uh, consistency in the arms deals that he's making with the West on higher end platforms. Yeah, I, uh, it, it's always hard to sort of you know parse a lot of those internal political things though because a lot of it is either steeped in a lot of nuance that foreigners like us sort of have trouble understanding um and and also i i think there there are you know elements that i i think we won't um i i just i don't think we we won't understand them until after they happen um, and there, there's going to be that element of it. I usually tiptoe around these issues because they're just they're they're <laughs> they are much harder to quantify than than some of the other stuff. It it is it is very hard to actually you know point to discrete numbers and facts and figures and just like yeah, here's what you know here's the feels of the situation because that's that's politics in a nutshell. I mean. I have a degree in political science. Like, polling, polling is all a lie. It's all feels. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, that's what a lot of these things are. They're relationship based as well, um, and so it, it it is very hard to gauge as an outsider. For sure. But what we what we have seen is we've seen Turkey's uh, capability and willingness to take out um, displeasure with one sector of its foreign policy on a completely different one if it means they'll get more leverage in that primary one. So I mean, in, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen them be very ticked off about the potential um, F-35 deal with Greece, uh, as well as you know their own F-16 deal possibly going under. And so I think when we look at their uh, application of pressure on other NATO states or on NATO as a whole, 
we can we could kind of draw a line at how that's how they're expressing their displeasure in order to sort of get their way moving forward. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I I do think again a lot of those Eastern Mediterranean issues are continually issues <laughs> per per se. There's there's there is a lot that sort of you know gets sort of batted back and forth there that does affect a lot of eastern flank nato stuff um but yeah i'm i mean i i i definitely think at least personally it's a wait and see moment i i don't know what we're gonna see until then Does anyone want to stop talking about the political side of things? Because I don't think we're going to get anywhere there. I was going to say, we'll drag it back to tanks for a minute. And um, there was was one tank delivery to Ukraine, which kind of took me by surprise. Um, And I don't know if we've mentioned it previously, but um, Morocco donated 20 T-72s, which were then upgraded by the Czech Republic before delivery to Ukraine. And, and and wait, I I believe the funds for the upgrades came from the Netherlands for that one. Yeah. Or, yeah, it was I, definitely. I, I, I believe there th- those tanks are actually out on the street, um, in Ukraine now as as we speak, um, engaging Russian forces or or at the very least ready to engage Russian forces. Um, I think there was a photo someone sent me earlier today from Bakhmut of one of those. T-72s parked up outside a building somewhere. Um, But yeah, Morocco, uh, uh, of all places. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's definitely interesting to see those go through that process. Um, But yeah, I mean, it's... I know Morocco purchased a bunch of T-72s back in, you know the 90s and early 2000s but it's always been interesting to sort of see morocco's you know kind of pro-nato stance and also i mean it's it's helped in some way by algeria being a a very friendly to russia power Mm. um and so i i do believe there's also the element of of morocco there's kind of that sort of anti-algerian sentiment and also that scoring some brownie points with nato um which i'm assuming they they have done at this point mm. um with with a donation like this that's fair and i think it also kind of shows the ingenuity of um, countries like the dutch that and the czechs to be able to uh get that program rolling much quicker than some of these larger deals we've talked about previously yeah so excalibur the the company that did it is excalibur armor workshops um they are an extremely interesting company that has, you know, I mean, it produces and works on a number of different systems. They also come out with sort of novel systems that they've worked on um, and developed. They're, they're definitely sort of an interesting uh, 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 asset that the, the Czechs have um, because they, they have built a bunch of, very novel systems they they have done a bunch of novel upgrade packages to systems um and they they definitely are one of those advanced sort of they're 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 very advanced in in what they're able to do um and sort of put forward especially in turnaround times on things um it's definitely super interesting that uh they have that market. I know I'll, I'll, I'll put this down in the comments below, but they, they actually, they have a wonderful uh, advertising package of um, various upgrade packages and advanced uh, sort of systems. They've managed to integrate into older um, uh, uh, a T72 and T55s, I think. Um, but I, I I do think the the most interesting one, which I'm I'm sure at some point they'll send to Ukraine, um, which is the the T72 Scarab, um, which is a significantly significant upgrade um, to the T72. Effectively, I mean, turning it into a uh, 
a, a fairly advanced system um which is it's just definitely interesting to see how much they've they've done with that Do we know when the Challenger tanks are going to get to Ukraine eventually? Ugh, no idea. It, it Some countries announce it after things start to arrive, which I, I, I do think that we've, or, or at least significantly after they've actually started the process of delivery. Um, I, 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 I do think we saw that, at least with some of the U.S. donated things, like harms. I, I, I believe that the harms had been pretty active in use in ukraine um even before the announcement was or the donation was announced um i know at least with bradley's between the day the first day they were announced as being delivered and um the actual ukrainian units like training on them it was just a few days um and with some of the domestic uk training programs i know there was the announcement of training starting domestically within the UK um, and then it was mere days until the first UK or before the first Ukrainian troops were on the ground um, at training grounds in the UK um, so I, I, I do think that that's an, an element of this of, of you know were they were they announced before everyone was ready to get going with them or you know was was it after um, I think we've we've yet to see that but we we probably will soon. Um, I, I'm assuming they'll they'll come at some point um, in the oh, near yeah. future. Yeah, I mean with the Sea King helicopters, I was actually quite surprised to see them in action already. I had no idea the UK had Sea King helicopters lying around, but yeah, I mean the fact that they got them up and running within a month was pretty yeah. darn impressive. Because <laughs> I think the donations were announced in in late December, and they're yeah. they're already flying in Ukraine. Um, and, and bearing in mind, we, we retired the Sea Kings from even the search and rescue role a couple of years ago now, um, because the U obviously the UK search and rescue capability was uh, Navy-operated Sea Kings for a, a significant number of years, and, and famously they had the uh, the grey and orange colour scheme, um, for which they were very, very well remembered and very well liked. Um, and then obviously that, that entire job was handed over to a, a private firm on a, on a contract, um, when the Navy retired the Sea Kings from that role. Um, I, I, for one, didn't actually know we'd kept any of the Sea Kings. I know some of them had been shipped off to museums, and um, I think there was one famously bought by a, a, a private company or a private investor or something who converted it into a, sort of a, a, a little home in a field somewhere. Um yeah, yeah, I think these actually are the search and rescue variants. I, I don't mm. think they're the old battlefield. Yeah, they do seem to be, and yeah. they seem to be used in a CSAR role, which is yeah. always interesting. Yeah. Um. I I I will say it's 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 definitely. I mean, I I I'm sure the Ukrainians will figure out how to bolt weaponry to them because because it's only a matter of time at this point, but um. It is it is really interesting to see sort of the bouncing around at least and the 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 or at least the, the I don't I don't know the right term for this because I don't wanna I don't wanna say anything weird. But um I I definitely do think the Ukrainians have been able to integrate a lot of these, you know, at some point because the Sea King is becoming literally a museum piece. Um, but they've been able to integrate these older platforms into still doing something um, to either, you know, relieve other frontline platforms that would be, you know, tasked to a CSAR role um, or a transport role to, you know, let them be able to conduct strike missions or, or whatever. Um, you know, any MI8s that, that the Sea Kings free up from doing those actual roles is, you know, that's an MI8 they're going to be putting on the front line. Um, but I definitely think that these you know even these older platforms the ukrainians have found use for them mm. and and will probably continue to i'm sure the uk has an airworthy lancaster maybe a spitfire <laughs> they'll figure they'll I, they'll figure out how to strap we'll arms to them <laughs> <laughs> no, they'll figure it out just 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 wait sorry which which um which uh, uh uh sorry um which vulcan is still in sort of flyable condition <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, you ever seen a Vulcan launch a harm missile? You will. <laughs> yeah. There are still sea harriers in um, somewhat serviceable use, if I'm right. I think the sea harrier FA2s are used to taxi around at Yovo. Well, I think I that a lot say, of them got, got sold off. Of left now. I'm, I'm pretty sure we oh, sold most of the airframes to the Americans, didn't we? Uh, no, those are the, the those are yeah. the GR Harriers. No, some oh, of the Sea Harriers are. actually got bought. Well, they they got bought for private use within the U.S. Um, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I saw I saw a few for sale recently. Um, for a fairly bargain basement price, it was like nine million for three of them. Um, <laughs> and like all had fairly solid combat history, you know, stretching back to the Falklands. Yeah. Um. But I, 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 it is sort of interesting to see how or where the Harriers have gone at this point. Yeah, I do think it'd be quite amusing if we did decide to uh, donate the Vulcan just just to keep her flying a little bit longer. Um, but I, I, I highly suspect that um, Zelensky would then probably try and use it to. Uh, bomb somewhere deep inside russia for a, a bit of and you know what it'd probably work it probably <laughs> would and that's the thing that scares me most to be honest um <laughs> if, if if russian air defenses recently have been anything to go by i i reckon she'd probably stand a good chance of making it back <laughs> yeah don't 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 give me oh no i'll let i'll let you go ahead george no no it's uh, just funny that you should say that i wrote an article today about the, the uk hasn't ruled out supplying longer range uh, missiles to ukraine in order to strike russian targets which i found uh, i found it actually quite remarkable remarkable that while they haven't committed to doing it and it's probably very unlikely they will they, they specifically stated they hadn't ruled it out you know, I mean, I don't think they're ever going to rule anything out no. categorically. I, I don't think that the UK will ever do that. Um, I mean, the US has sometimes said that they will, you know, won't provide longer range weapons in order to avoid provoking Russia. I think I think maybe that was the term used or 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 heightening the tension. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think that is, you know, one of one of the parts of, of why the U.S. still won't give those very long range. I, the U.S., I do not believe in any near point in time will give Ukraine, you know, full range. And, and I'll say this fully, you know, equipped or, or full range Atticums, I, I or Atacums, you know, whichever you want to call it. Um, I, I don't think they'll do that yet. What there is a chance, of... you know, there are there are other, you know, attackums that have a shorter range that, you know, might be sort of yeah. utilized or at least attractive. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think and it's, you know, it, it's that not giving things that will heighten any sort of tension at the strategic level. No, that's fair enough. But what, what do you make of uh, Russia installing SAMs on high buildings in Moscow? I was about to pivot into that one. Ah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'll let you go. <laughs> uh, without going into too many, like, you know, just palace coup shenanigan, you know, speculations because that's everyone who does that probably doesn't know what they're talking about um but but i i i do think that you know there is an element that the russians are potentially afraid that their other longer range systems aren't as capable as they thought they were at at you know defeating targets like small drones and other stuff um so deploying you know a combat proven system like the pantsir um it, it you know it it would be pretty a uh, pretty effective platform against you know something like a small drone attack carried out against Moscow, um, and they they possibly do have that fear. And if you look at the way they're positioned, they're positioned around the Kremlin. They are positioned to protect the Kremlin. I think it's interesting because it's almost as though the Kremlin is now expecting some sort of Ukrainian version of the Doolittle raid. Um, against moscow and 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 obviously the, the the propaganda element would be again sort of the, the main focus of that i think it's also indicative of a of a creeping sense of sort of paranoia within 
Russian high command and within the Russian government itself, right? On the one end, uh, the United States has been very clear that, you know, we we have not and we don't have any plans currently to supply some of those longer range missile systems to the Ukrainians. However, you know, the Russians have seen us uh, also say, you know, we're not going to send Bradleys and then we do, or we're not going to send this and we're not going to, you know, uh, the most recent big um, ticket item, which will take some time to deploy uh, is the, uh, the Patriot system. And so I think the, the Panthers themselves, I would agree with what Tactical was saying. I think they're there more so out of fear of a uh, more insurgent-looking action against, you know, key uh, key sites in Moscow as opposed to yeah, a massive, you know, the Vulcan finally making it to Moscow and wreaking havoc. Um, <laughs> but in, in all seriousness, I also think that there is a suspicion and there's a fear that the U.S. or another um, Western ally would provide Ukraine with something to conduct a limited strike on a strategically important ter- uh, target in Russia. Hmm. And the propaganda, uh, sort of the PR defeat that would be incurred by the Russians by not having, not being set up to combat that would wreak havoc on their already um, waning morale. Yeah, and, and speaking of morale and, and, and sort of the, the, the views of, of senior leadership in, in the Kremlin and, and, and Russian military, um, I noticed recently, um, I can't remember if it was after one of Putin's speeches or something else, um, the tone in Russian state media changed somewhat from what used to be them discussing the, the special military operation and they actually almost ceased referring to it as a special military operation. Now they they seem to be instead referring it to it, um, particularly in the media, as a war. Um, obviously, for those of uh, our listeners who follow the um, the Darth Putin account on Twitter, um, which is probably one of the better spoof accounts out there, and uh, usually comes out with some quite outlandish and uh, funny uh, tweets. Um, the, the ongoing joke from that account has been it's day 300 and whatever of my three-day war. My, my troops are advancing in a backwards direction and, you know, I, I remain a master strategist. Um, and to a certain extent, it, it's, it is starting to look like um, even sort of Russian leadership are having now to admit that this isn't quite what they had in mind when they when they started the offensive a year ago. Oh, absolutely. And the initial sort of reference to it as a special military operation, uh, which is now very much shown to be a double-edged sword to Russian information efforts, um, I think it's a, it's a really clear example of, of a gamble, right? Had that initial strategy played out and had they continued to call it a special military operation, then, you know, the Russians look like geniuses, Hmm. but you know, the longer, uh, what are we on day 300 and something of the three day special military operation, the longer they continue to refer to it as such, the more it makes, uh, it makes that line um, look uh, inept and out of touch. So I, I think yeah. there's a very clear reason why we've seen Russian state media outlets, um, as well as Russian propagandists, try and slowly start distancing themselves from that line uh, because they don't really have the events on the ground to back it up. And in October of last year, we started seeing a lot more of the conversation switching to, oh, this is a conflict against terrorism. Now we're seeing some more narratives coming up about uh, other unrelated uh, conflicts such as Serbia, um, unrelated directly to Ukraine is what I mean by that. But it, what's very clear is that the Russian information sector was not prepared to continue to justify something like this for this long. And as a result, they're really having to try and scramble to get their story straight. Oh, yeah. No, they're they're suffering in their attempts to to sort of keep together the narrative. I mean, if you look at the, you know, average Russian telegram channel, they are <laughs> there. There is even among the most hardcore of, you know, pro regime accounts. There is, you know, this 
understanding that it's a war and they they won't they won't say it you know openly they'll still use the words you know zone of the special military operation and you know all this other stuff but but there is that underlying understanding of basically any account that isn't you know just a a stream of russian you know just straight russian media releases that there there is that understanding that you know this is a war this is you know what's happening um but no it 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 is really interesting to sort of see that evolve um and i i i do think it has evolved um to this point where the they just they cannot openly admit because it would be disastrous if they did hmm. um or or at least would get that type of egg on your face that is more internally harmful than anything else than just keeping the lie up um but i i definitely think that there is the general understanding among the average russian that it is a war i i i i do not think the russians were ever able to exert that much informational control over their people and you know even if even if you look at the russian you know state media outlets they're they're they do not paint a pretty picture um, for the overall, you know, Russian war effort. So they will trumpet, you know, if there is a minor Russian victory, they, they will absolutely trumpet that from the heavens. But, you know, they, they also sometimes have to admit when things have gone south for them. Um, and I, I don't think that that will change anytime in the near future. And what we've seen in the last, you know, month or so has been a tremendous amount of pivoting from uh, from state media outlets, just really trying to find something that'll stick. And what they've kind of ended up on in in the last week or so has been a, an intense focus on what's going on near Solidar, as well as uh, continuing to sort of trump up the quote unquote accomplishments of of the Wagner Group. Uh, in the weeks before that, we saw two narratives trying to sort of stick that really weren't the first being the prisoner exchange with the u.s uh, between Brittany griner and victor boot that kind of fell flat on its face when boot got back to russia and was talking about how he didn't want to go fight in the war um or he wouldn't be enlisting immediately uh and then the second narrative was all of the talk about a potential ceasefire for for orthodox christmas and again, I mean, there was never um, any ceasefire agreed to by either side there, but it, obviously that was a sort of a blatant attempt by the Russians to say, look at look at the Ukrainians, look at how they're violating this ceasefire that mm. hasn't really existed. But they're they're the bad guys, and that really didn't didn't catch on either. So now we've seen a large scale focus on on Bakhmut, Solidar, and uh, a semi consistent focus. And I'd like to hear your guys' inputs on this as well. Um, I think one of the ways the Russians are trying to downplay the actual effects of the war on, you know, conscripted troops and further further mobilization efforts is by focusing on on uh, Wagner itself, because when the, when they focus on Wagner, it looks number one, it's uh, it's a specific unit they can look at and say, you know, look at how well they're performing. This is what you know Russian military superiority looks like on the on the positive end and then on the negative end they can downplay any difficulties they're running into because they can describe them as a private military company right these aren't you know when you're talking to the Russian populace you're not saying you know these are your sons who were conscripted these are all volunteers they want to be here yeah I, so I think the problem with Wagner at least you know as this group is that the more they pump it up the more that it actually becomes a threat to the Russian government itself. Mm. Um, there currently Wagner is the only successful portion of the Russian military, mostly because they can just, th you know, throw their quote volunteers at, you know, Ukrainian positions and, and just sort of erode them with, you know, the sheer amount of people they're willing to sacrifice. Um, but, you know, they, they've been successful with sort of that model of basically throw prisoners at the front lines and, you know, hope for the best. Um, I, I do think that um, Russia is in the, or at least the Russian government, or, or currently the Russian military command of, you know, Gerasimov and, and everyone around him, or as they continue to reshuffle stuff, who mm. knows who will actually end up in power there. Um, but I think the 
potential risk, at least to, you know, the, the Russian government per se, um, is that they're, you know, if they hype Wagner up to the public, the public will see them as a more and more effective organization, whereas they will view the Russian army as incompetent. <laughs> And so you, you sort of, you see where the, the logical end to this is, is, you know, it undermines the power of the government to the people. And, you know, again, Russia doesn't have the levels of informational control where they can just sort of discount um, practical issues that are happening. Um, so you end up with these these risks where if they, they hype up... Um, you know, these, these basically, you know, private militant organizations, um, there's, there's a huge risk for the Russian government itself, especially now that the leader of Wagner Prison is, um, kind of having a feud with mili the military leadership in Russia. Um, and so if that continues, the, the Russian government, you know, it's really hard to publicize Wagner's successes and the, their own failures. Yeah, no, that makes that no, makes, a, it makes a bunch of sense. And uh, I definitely uh, would agree with that. You know, the the more Wagner is lauded, the more dangerous they become to you know the the trust of the russian public within the russian military or for the russian military i should say yeah no disagreements there yeah because because they the, you know the average russian you know looks at the situation and they see an incompetent regular army a non-existent air force you know where where air defense and and all that stuff um but I, I, I do think that especially if the Ukrainians are able to put together another offensive in, you know, basically any area that Wagner doesn't have a heavy presence in. So, you know, basically not Bakhmut or the, or the surrounding area. Um, I definitely think that there will be a lot of internal Russian drama there um, over, over the actual effectiveness of the army itself. Um, and then, of course, there's the 500-pound Russian bear in the corner of, um, you know, what is the army doing right now with all their conscripts? Are they planning another, you know, winter or spring offensive at this point? Um, though I, I, I don't think it's actually gotten cold enough this, yet this winter where they're probably going to run into mud again um, sometime soon. Um, and I definitely think there there is that... Uh, that debate on on what the Russians are actually going to do um, in the upcoming months. Because, you know, I mean, yeah, sure, Wagner was able to advance a couple of kilometers in Solodar and, and, and take that town. Um, and, and, you know, there's going to be back and forth in that area for a while. Um, but at the end of the day, that doesn't really change the tactical situation at all. Um, both in Donetsk um, in the east and, you know, among, uh, you know, on the greater Ukrainian front. Um, so there, I, I, I just, I, I, I am, I'm still questioning, you know, what the, what the Russians intend to do in the spring. Um, and I think a lot of people are at the moment. I think, I think that's a very valid thing to speculate on if capable or just sort of wait for more information on. Because like you mentioned, a lot of what we've seen in, in Solidar and in Bakhmut, at least from the Russian side of things, has been you know a lot of focused on Wagner. And we haven't heard a ton about you know the, the recent mobilization, where those troops are going, what state they're in. Um, I mean, there's been there's been some limited you know information. I think that the consistent rumor that's been going on for the last six months has always been you know what belarus doing um mm. and so i mean short of short of conscription Belar the belarusian military is a non sort of power in the situation oh for sure um and, and the reality is if belarus did get directly involved they'd be far uh facing far greater risks uh within their own cities as opposed to 
them attempting and likely, if not certainly, failing to open up another front threatening Kiev. Yeah, I don't think they could pull off conscription and then sending most of their regular military away. <laughs> they they kind of need them to hang around for, uh, you know, internal issues. Hmm. And I think, unless you guys have got anything else you want to add to that, we will probably call it there. You want to do news, John? I... I... I know Ukraine for me is is news for you. I mean, um, there's not an awful lot of news really that we haven't already covered that would really be relevant for this episode. So um, yeah, yeah, there's there's not. I mean, of course, I really haven't been keeping up with the news recently. Do I do, you know, some other stuff? Hmm. But um, yeah, no, I I. Ugh. Yeah, I I haven't seen anything that really like comes out at me news wise. Uh, oh shoot, the one other thing. Ah, crud. That the New York Times story. Um, uh, Russian agents in uh, Spain. Um, they're they're so this was a story from the New York Times released yesterday. Um, Russian agents uh were suspected of directing far right groups to send mail bombs in Spain. Um, so this is coming from U S and EU officials, uh, uh, last November and early December, six letter bombs, uh, were sent to, yeah, the country's prime minister, uh, the American and Ukrainian embassies, the Spanish defense ministry. Um, and I believe also a Spanish weapons manufacturer, Mm. um, but a, an employee at the Ukrainian embassy was injured in in when one of the packages actually exploded. It's like this was a legitimate act of terror. Um, and now U.S. EU and U.S. officials believe that uh, uh, Russian military intelligence officials were responsible for directing the attacks. Um, and so I think there definitely is a huge question here of how far is Russia willing to go with stuff like this? Are they willing to start asymmetric warfare within Europe? Um, are, cause, cause you know, it's it, Russia since the, the 1950s has sort of, you know, cultivated a lot of these organizations within Europe um, and, and, you know, put a lot of work towards maintaining those contacts, even after the collapse of the Soviet union. Mm-hmm. Um so that that is a, a huge question and a huge risk assessment question for Europe right now of, you know, will these organizations sort of pose a threat on on Russia's order? And, you know, if if Russian officials, you know, order an attack like this through a proxy group, you know, what what type of sort of action do you consider that as? How does Europe respond to something like that? And, and it's going to be a key question for Europe, particularly you, you obviously mentioned it is effectively an act of terrorism, um, because it's fair to say that in the recent years, Europe has collectively very much shied away from using the term terrorism for a number of incidents that have taken place. Um, we've obviously seen incidents recently in Germany um, where sort of the, the, there's been very clear sort of shootings, stabbings, um, even sort of like vehicles being used in attacks. Um, obviously, this is more generally terrorism related, um, and the, the sort yeah, of I, deliberate I, shying away from declaring them as terrorist incidents. Um, I think there was the element of shying away from it because they were either lone wolf or inspired attacks, hmm. whereas this is organized. This is yeah. this is you know this is an official thing. This is you know. This is state-sponsored terror, yes. um, yeah. which it, it's it's certainly difficult to parse events like that, um, and sort of sort of tracking and nailing that down is is a challenge, um, and and one that I think European states are are running into right now. Yeah. Because holy cow, like, like, I'm, I'm, like, if you if you look at this in a vacuum, it is, it is a state, in in you know, that views itself as a sta- in a state of war with the European Union and with the you know Europe in general, and and this state views, or this state has now directed 
um, terror attacks against these parties that they believe that they're in war against, that they believe that, you know, they're at war against. And how how does Europe sort of parse that? And, and how do they prepare for the next one? Because, you know, if they've done it once, then who knows what they'll do next? Mm. Yeah, I think it's a very clear indicator that they're is an appetite within the Russian intelligence community to promote sort of acts of physical violence, uh, political, sorry, well, I guess political and physical violence within the borders of the European Union. Uh, the only question that I have, and I'm sure plenty of uh, European intelligence and defense planners have, is will this, number one, continue after they've been kind of caught red-handed doing so? And then two, if it does continue, will this expand into sectors that Russia has previously threatened, like energy storage? Um, so because those they those... did, they, and and I think they did send a mail bomb to a weapons manufacturer who is sending weapons to Ukraine, and so that that's not just going from just a political act of terror, but you know it's direct action against enemy war infrastructure. And of course, this isn't something that's new just because of the special military operation in Ukraine. Because, of course, it's not been that many years since we obviously had the Russian agents in the UK in Salisbury. Um, obviously, with the Novichok poisonings, that was quite a, a, a big deal at the time. And, and, and as you say, clearly Russia is still continuing to use its uh, intelligence services for that purpose. And I suppose my, my thought is, well, you know, obviously they've done that. Now they've sort of, as you say, targeted both political and military infrastructure in Spain. How much further are they prepared to go? Yeah, and and who are they willing to target as mm. well? You know, would would they target Polish entities? Would they target French entities? Would they target you know entities in the UK or Germany? Um, and and there definitely, I think, remains those really big questions that no one has an answer to. And that's, I, I think that's scary for a lot of people right now. Hmm. For sure. And it's coming, uh, and you know, it's kind of coming off of the tail of yet another Russian um, narrative kind of falling flat on its face, which was, uh, I'm sure we all remember over last summer, the just absolute gargantuan amount of information being put out on how Europe would freeze this winter and how, you know, Europeans, whether they're in Germany or Italy or France, wouldn't be able to turn on their stoves. And we saw, you know, many, many a Kremlin funded um, propagandist, you know, filming themselves just turning on their stove or something like that. And as a result, we've seen what's been fundamentally a gargantuan effort on the part of the Europeans to properly store uh, energy stockpiles necessary come to really uh really good fruition i mean the the current uh german liquid natural gas stockpiles are beating the most optimistic of their own predictions um so uh, keeping everything that we've just talked about in mind i don't see it as a as a far reach to at least consider the the possibility of sort of russian intelligence backed terror targeting um european infrastructure sites Yeah, and I, I, you know, it's it's definitely something that European leadership will have to parse. They will have to, you know, assess the safety risks. And I definitely think it's it's really hard to figure that out. And and it's you know it's it's dangerous. Hmm. I mean, you know, it's 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 attacks against assets, especially once you you sort of fully understand the attack against the defense manufacturer you know it, it is it is a, a tax against defense capabilities yeah. um which certainly starts becoming or, or looking more and more like direct action by the russian military more than anything um and, and of course and it's not just... the, the, the 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 fine line then becomes how far russia goes towards direct action as you say and how far down the scale in the opposite direction NATO then considers Article 5 as having been reached. And that that is the truly dangerous part of, you know, would a major attack against an asset, you know, in in NATO 
would that that classify as an Article Five event if they were able to draw direct con- you know connections to Russian intelligence? Um, and I I think that is you know I mean even with Spain you know it's an attack against a defense you know asset mm. possibly directed you know by Russian intelligence. At at what level would would Spain you know be justified in in calling some sort of Article Four or is it Article Three or Article Four? Um, it's the, the conference to discuss, you know, Article Five. Um, you know, at at what point would they be be willing to, you know, enact Article Four on an issue like this? Um, I don't think they have yet, and I don't, I probably don't think they would on something like this. But you know, if if Russia is able to get away with something like this, you know, will they repeat it, and yeah. and against whom? On a slightly related tangent, um, you guys have probably seen the news that there are currently two former Royal Navy mine hunters. Sailing under the Ukrainian flag with Ukrainian crew um, operating off the eastern coast of Scotland. Now, do we think Russia might take any sort of action against those ships? Is it possible? Do they have the capabilities to? Well, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> <that's, that's, laughs> I'm, I'm fairly sure if they were to do something, it would be very clear that they did it, um, if they could even do it. Um, and well, that, and that, that, that's a huge question. That was more of my thinking. Could do they think they would get away with it? Now there have been a lot of operations from British PA Poseidons, you know, more or less exactly in the area those two Ukrainian ships are operating. But it just it's always struck me as something that I think would be an easy propaganda win for Russia. Obviously, they don't really have the technical capabilities to do it. But it, I mean, it they'd won't. they'd have the technical capabilities to do it, but everyone would know yeah, that yeah. they did it. Yeah. Um. And not not just know that they did it, but it would also be very. Uh, it, it would be hard for them to do it. Oh, I think we will call it there. Um, On that cheery note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, terrorism and Russian sinking ships in the North Sea. Um, yeah, on that note, ladies and gentlemen, this uh, has been season five, episode one of the Ocean Bunker podcast. Um, thank you to uh, Austin, George and Technical uh, for joining me this evening. Um, we are hoping to uh, start having guests back on the ep- uh, on the podcast, hopefully from next episode. Um, so do keep an eye out on our Twitter uh, and Facebook in relation to those announcements. Um, and thank you all very much for listening. Um, good night.